In these chapters from chapter 24, 25 and 26, Paul is now under arrest, as we know. He's in the Praetorium of Herod, uh, quite a very, a very opulent area in uh, Caesarea. And it's here that Paul undergoes a number of trials. That is to say, he's questioned by the authorities. There's this religious establishment around him. There's even royal figures we'll discover that are around him as well. And before them, Paul is asked uh, to respond to the accusations made by his co-religionists that he's unfaithful. In fact, he's betrayed the religious traditions of Judaism. What will emerge in this uh, section of Acts is that Paul is faithful. He's faithful. He's a faithful Jew. In fact, he's steeped in Judaism. He's, he's from the strictest party, he'll tell us, of the Pharisees. Paul is faithful. He's faithful to God. He's faithful to his Jewish religion. He's authentically Jewish. He affirms this several times and he's committed to the gospel and to the witness of Jesus. So over the series of uh, Apologia, which there are a number in this section of Acts, what Luke seeks to do is sum up Paul, Paul as a religious identity, as a faithful Jew, and one who's committed to God. And Luke presents Paul as a prophet, even to the point of even inviting the king. Maybe he's thinking of becoming a follower of Jesus. So the whole scene will end with Paul at the end of his apologia about to go to Rome because he's appealed to Caesar and to Caesar he will go. These three chapters are wonderful. In chapter 24, uh, as Luke begins again the story of Paul and Paul is in Herod's Praetorium, at Caesarea. We note how in verse 1, after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman called one Tertullus and they put before the governor the case against Paul so the everything seems to be stacked against him and so Tertullus uh, gives a witness and in, in, in the witness he basically proclaims that Paul has been unfaithful to his Jewish heritage. And in verse 6, he's even not only being an agitator among all the Jews throughout the world, says Tertullus, but also he has a ringleader, been a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he's even tried to profane the temple. So that's the accusation against him. And that accusation gets further uh, uh, further uh, agreed to by the other Jewish people, the other Jewish members that have accompanied this accusation, these charges. So the governor invites Paul to reply to this in verse 10. So we have now the first of a couple of apologies, Paul's defense speeches on what he's been accused of. So he's uh, he affirms, Paul, Luke's Paul affirms, he's glad to be given the opportunity before the governor to act on his defence. So as he begins to unfold his story, it's very clear to the audience that Paul was faithful 
a faithful Jew. He went up to Jerusalem to worship. Despite the dispute, he goes to the temple. Um, in verse 14, he says, I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our, of our fathers, of our ancestors, believing everything laid down by the law, by the Torah, or written in the prophets. So Luke summarizes in Luke's, uh, in Paul's words, the Hebrew Bible, leading in verse 15, a hope in God that if they accept these things, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So again, Paul affirms the resurrection of the dead. And he believes he's got a clear conscience towards God and towards human beings. And again, he reiterates the fact that he offers arms for the people, offers, offers his offerings to the Jewish world. And, uh, and, and in fact, he can even say that they witnessed his purification in the temple. So all the accusations against Paul's rejection of his Jewish heritage, his abrogation of it, and in fact, uh, uh, his denial of it is rejected by Paul in this apologia. And then in verse 22, Luke writes, But Felix, having rather an accurate knowledge of the way, says that um, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gives orders for the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but had some liberty uh, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So there's a, a kind of an openness to allow Paul to be both incarcerated, yet a uh, freedom to move around. It's kind of like a house arrest. And then in verse 24, we hear about Felix coming with his wife, Drusilla. The mention of Drusilla would remind those listening to this story of, of what perhaps Josephus picks up in his Antiquities of the Jews in chapter 20 of his antiquities, how Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, according to Josephus, and according to gossip reported by Josephus, she was originally married to the king of Emesa as part of her brother's dynastic arrangements. But Felix was overcome by her beauty when he saw her, and arranged for a negotiator to persuade her to leave her husband and marry him. And that's perhaps this is one of the reasons why Felix had some understanding, some knowledge of the way. And maybe this is behind part of the style that Paul, Luke's Paul negotiates with Felix. Anyway, um, he, he sends for Paul, asks for him to speak and Paul speaks about his faith in Jesus Christ. So it's quite clear, for Paul is faithful to his gospel message, faithful to what he's been asked to do. And in verse 25, he argues about justice and self-control and future judgment. And perhaps that is speaking into the uh, arranged marriage relationship that Felix had with Drusilla, uh, which brings Felix to become alarmed and... Uh, tells him to go away for the present uh, and he will summon him at a later time, hoping, according to Luke, that Paul would pay him, would bribe him, would give him some money. So uh, he kept Paul under house arrest for two years. And finally, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. 
uh, and desiring to do the Jews a favour, Felix leaves Paul in prison as well. So that moves us on to chapter 25. I mean, this is a fascinating part of Luke's story in Acts, the way that uh, Luke's Paul remains faithful, though there is some compromise by the, uh, not simply by the Jewish leadership, but also by the Roman leadership, who are, uh, the political leaders are not proving to be loyal or strong or rigorous in their judgment of Paul as they might have been. Anyway, Festus comes um, from Jerusalem to Caesarea and he's accompanied by the chief priests and informant Jews who hold it against Paul, um, asking they wanted to have Paul sent to Jerusalem, planning an ambush against him. However, Festus kept Paul in Caesarea. And in verse 5 he said, so he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me to Caesarea. And if there's anything wrong about Paul, let them accuse him. So it's a, it seems to be an open, uh, open judgment, an open court, as it were. However, you could say that the, um, the evidence is stacked against Paul. So this is where we take up the next part of the, the scenario. So... Uh, Festus comes down to Caesarea, took up his seat at the tribunal and orders Paul to be brought in. And he comes in surrounded by those who had come down from Jerusalem to witness against and to offer serious charges against Paul. So Paul in verse 8 again enters into an apologia for the second time and reiterates, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended all. Festus, however, is, wish, is willing to be compromised by the Jewish leadership. And asks Paul, does he want to go up to Jerusalem to be tried? Paul says, in verse 10, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death, but if there is something but if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And it's that declaration because uh, in Luke, in Luke's story of Acts, Paul is a Roman citizen. Uh, whether that's uh, how Paul, in Paul's own letter, sees himself is another question. So Festus then in verse 12, having conferred with his council, says, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. So this declaration then very firmly moves Paul's face towards Rome. The, the very promise that Paul has been asked to make by God that he will that Paul will uh, witness to God, to the gospel in Rome. And this sets it up. So in verse 13, um, after days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived uh, at Caesarea, really to welcome Festus. However, Festus takes this as an opportunity to lay Paul's case before Agrippa. And um, having outlined the points of the case, Felix uh, uh, pretends, well, comes across 
not exactly as a sincere agent of the political realm. Um, he wants to, he apparently wants to do all the right things, but at another level, he's keep he keeps compromising what he wants to do. Anyway, Agrippa says to Festus, "I will hear the case of the man himself." So tomorrow that that happens, says um, uh, asks Agrippa, "Let's do it tomorrow. Let's hear him then." So on the following day, Agrippa and Berenice come with, according to Luke, with great pomp. They enter the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. I mean, what a wonderful vision Luke offers. Here is the highest, well, the highest political representative of Caesar in the land. Uh, the pomp and ceremony uh, emphasizes then this kind of political power about to be used in defending or at least hearing Paul's case. So Festus commands Paul to be brought in. And then Festus repeats what the accusation is. And he basically wants to get some idea of uh, how to go about in responding to the charges sent against the prisoner Paul. So in chapter 26, then, we pick up the next part of this uh, at this moment where King Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So then Paul uh, uh, opens his mouth, stretches out his hand and begins to make a third apologia, a third defense of who he is. And in this chapter 26 from 2 onwards, we get a wonderful summary of a number of aspects of Paul, the way that Luke wants Paul to be understood. First of all, he affirms Paul's Judaism and he and Paul begs for him to be listened to patiently and he reminds his listeners how from his youth he was faithful to his own people even though at the moment they're standing wanting to testify against him and he also affirms how he was in the strictest party of his religion in verse 5 he lived as a Pharisee says Paul and um, now he stands here on trial for hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors. So for Paul, what he sees is in what he's doing, his own mission, his own preaching, is in complete uh, correspondence, in complete harmony with his own Jewish traditions. So uh, in verse 9, he says how he was convinced that he ought to do many things in, a, in opposing the name of Jesus. So he had this antagonism to the followers of the way, uh, how he even wanted to put them to death and wanted to punish them often in all the synagogues in verse 11 and tried to make them blaspheme and uh, he persecuted them even to foreign cities. So it's quite clear per Paul affirms or identifies himself originally as a persecutor of the followers of Jesus. And then in verse 12, for a final time, he tells the audience about his own moment, the moment where he meets the risen Jesus, who delivers him and becomes. this becomes the moment where Paul's, uh, uh, Paul's missionary endeavor, now in, the, in harmony with what God's asking of him, is towards the Gentiles. And he gets affirmed that he, is the, as a prophet, one who's called to speak to the Gentiles. And in verse 18, he's called to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, in God. So it's a wonderful affirmation of the Lucan portrait of Paul as one who's come, who's sent by God in a divine mission for the Gentiles to enlighten them. In the final part of his defence, in verses 19-23, he turns to affirm that God is the one that called him, and in harmony with his understanding of the prophets and Moses, the Torah, affirms that what would come to pass is that the Christ would suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. So this theme of light, the light to the Gentiles, is one that runs through this whole apologia. Well, Festus is not impressed. He says with a loud voice, Paul, you're mad. Your great learning is turning you mad. That's wonderful. Paul says, I'm not mad, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking the sober truth. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his nose, and this was not done for a corner. And then he turns to Agrippa. He says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And then Agrippa responds, in a short time, you think to make me a Christian. Another time, this, the word Christianoi is used in Luke, in Luke's Acts. Paul responds, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except, of course, he says, for these chains. In other words, Paul becomes Luke's authentic speaker on behalf of the gospel. He doesn't waver from that commitment. And then the whole scene ends as the king rises and the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. And when they had drawn, they said to one another, so this is the conversation that takes place off stage, as it were. So they say, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa then says to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So it's quite clear that Paul is regarded as innocent, similar to the declaration three times made in the gospel. In the Passion, in Luke's story, Jesus is thrice declared innocent. So the figure of Jesus, the ascended one, continues still uh, as we come to the latter part of Acts through those who are committed to Jesus. And the primary model of that for Luke now is Paul. Looking back over these uh, three chapters, wonderful chapter. Well, in fact, the whole of Acts is wonderful, as we know. But in these three chapters, wonderful chapters where uh, they provide Paul, Paul, um, the character of Paul, Luke's Paul, with uh, the reasons for why he does what he does. It's in, in fact, it's like a summary of Paul's career and Paul's life. His his fidelity and faithfulness to his own people, Jewish people. He is deeply Jewish. Faithful to Jesus, that brings him to this point that 
He's even preaching to those around him. He's even, even his accusers, even the political leaders, the, the governor and the, the king. So Paul is faithful, but he also comes through as an authentic prophet, one who's able by his own nature, by his commitment to God, to speak a word of truth, despite what's happening around him. So he's a, he's a Jesus figure, as uh, Luke presents him. He's even right towards the end of the scenes that we're looking at, he's declared by the political authorities as innocent. Very similar to what happened in Jesus. What emerges over these chapters, and this is borrowing from the work of Luke Timothy Johnson, who writes, Luke uses these hearings to eliminate once and for all any false apprehensions concerning Paul. He is not a charlatan, but sincere, not a renegade from Judaism, but one faithful to the ancestral customs and beliefs, not a fermenter of unrest, but a prophetic witness to the resurrection. Not a cowardly opportunist, but a loyal and obedient disciple whose path of suffering replicates that of Jesus himself. By the rebuttal of the attacks on Paul's person, Luke also focuses the reader, or what I think the listener, on the real issue, which is the hope of Israel, that is, the resurrection of the dead. I think what Johnson sums up here is a very helpful insight to what we have seen over these chapters and prepares us for Paul's final journey to Rome.